Hey, and welcome into episode number 58 of the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. This is my podcast. I'm excited for you to hear this week's episode. It's a little different than some of the other episodes that we've done on the podcast, to be quite honest with you. And I'll explain why momentarily. Before I get started, want to give a, a very special thank you to Shane Reardon, who is the operations director guy thingy at The Score. I think that's his title. But I want to thank him because he's been putting in this new system that we're using, this wide orbit, I think it's called. So he, he's been spearheading that, and he's had to put up with a lot of nonsense from all of us because change is difficult, and it's not always the easiest product to, to, to do change in inside of sports radio. So I give Shane a lot of credit because he's helped me out. So what happens is like we have this big audio vault, and that was actually the system that we had. He had an audio vault system that had everything that we play. So every cut, every drop, every song that we use to bump back with, all of those things are, are in our audio vault. And each show has its own tab. So inside my tab, there are thousands of drops, interviews, pieces of interviews, sound bites inside there. And it all has to be moved over to the wide orbit selection. So they've been doing all that with everything around here. And I was like, oh, you know, the the beats that open up House of L, which my nephew Justin made for me, are in there. And when I came in to record, I'm sitting here like, wait a minute, where is it? And he was able to find it. So big thanks to Shane for, for his help. He has really done a tremendous job with this. He's been given a, a lot of responsibility, and he has risen to the occasion. So I thank him for, for his help in getting us underway and, and getting making it so that the podcast would be available to you this week. So... Lots of great feedback from the Chris Tannehill episode. If you're checking out this episode because you like our guest, make sure you go back and look at some of the older ones. And by the way, I said this at the end of last week's episode, and I'll keep saying it. Maybe I need to say it on the front end. If you're sending me suggestions for people who should be on the podcast, before you send the email to houseoflpodcast at gmail.com, you might want to scroll through and see if that person has indeed been on the podcast because there's a, a solid chance that that person has been on the podcast. That, truly, that is the case. We've had people be like, oh, man, you should get Jim Rose on. Yeah, he's been on the podcast. It was a fantastic episode. Have you ever thought about talking with Sarah Spain? Yeah. We sat down for an hour and 15 minutes. It was delightful. It's all there. And all you have to do is just scroll through and you'll find it. You used to work with Cheryl Scott. How about having her on? Yeah. Episode three. Episode three. So just scroll through and you might find some of the people that you want to get interviewed on the show. Okay. All right. Now that, that said, now on to our guest. The guest this week is Adam Rittenberg, who writes for ESPN. Adam and I go back a ways. He used to cover the Bears. He used to cover Northwestern. I'd see him all the time. You know, he's based here in Chicago, but he covers college football nationally. We're also office partners. 
Like we share the adjunct office at DePaul. So occasionally I, I see him as I'm getting ready to start my class and he's getting ready to leave his or vice versa. He's one of the best writers, I think, in, in our industry. And he covers a subject that is very foreign to me, college athletics. And, and I mean that from a coverage standpoint. Like, yeah, I've done games with DePaul. I cover games. I, I enjoy a lot of the places that I've gone. But there's a difference between coming in and doing play-by-play on a game or, in my case, for your alma mater, so you kind of already love it, versus covering the country and covering college football in particular. So I wanted to get his perspective. The other thing is, because he works as a professor at DePaul, it was good to share notes. And you'll find that the two of us end up talking a lot about this business through the lens of dealing with our own students and what we want them to learn. So I picked up a few things from Adam. Hopefully Adam picked up a few things from me. And as we kind of shared ideas about the best way to prepare future journalists for what they're going to encounter out in the real world, which is a big goal for both of us to get them the practical knowledge that they'll need to survive along with all of the theoretical stuff that they're going to learn inside of a journalism school or, or inside a broadcasting program, we want to make sure that they can kind of marry those two ideas. So we got into some great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. It's a little bit different from some of the other interviews, and we really got into the weeds in some of this stuff, and it was great. I'm so happy that he had time to do it. I'm so glad that we had a chance, and I'm so glad that you get to hear me talking all sorts of things with ESPN's Adam Rittenberg. How long have we known each other? Have we known each other like almost 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I first met you shortly after I was out of school working at the Daily Herald. So it must have been 2004, 2005, somewhere in that range. Uh, you know, I started working for them right after I got out of school in 2003 and was covering college sports mostly and some other things. But it was right around that that range. Okay, so so how did you figure out that college sports would be your niche? Because you covered everything before this. I did, although I, I feel like because of where I went to school and the things I was doing there and also the internships I got, there was sort of a natural path to covering college sports. I mean, I didn't grow up a huge college sports fan until we moved to California in, uh, I guess I was middle school, elementary school, and I started going to sports at Cal. You know, we lived in Berkeley. I went to football games there. I was a season ticket holder. Would sneak in to see Sharif Abdurrahim in the men's basketball team <laughs> of the 90s. I, I will master any uh, Cal basketball 90s trivia, including all the same cards that they were given, you know, as part of the, the program that got, <laughs> got my guy Todd Bozeman in trouble. But um, I, I went to school at Northwestern. I obviously covered college sports there for student media. And then um, I, I did an internship at ESPN after my sophomore year, and they needed help in college football. They didn't have enough people at that time to cover college football. So I, I, I ended up using that. To, it became kind of a freelancer for them with college football and then did that my last two years of school. And then at the Daily Herald, they also you know used me primarily there. So I think because of my college experience and because of my work experience outside, it just became a natural. And also I was I was into it by that point. I mean, I, I'd, I'd been a fan 
in high school, going to a lot of Pac-12 games or Pac-10 games, and then in college, you know, with the Big Ten and, and covering that 2000 Northwestern team, which was a big deal in school for the school paper. And then, uh, you know, just kind of from there, it became a natural part of, of this for me to cover. Although, like you said, I did some baseball, I helped out with other sports, but that was sort of the specialty. What do you think is the biggest difference between covering professional sports versus covering college? Well, yeah, I think there's definitely a tone difference in terms of, I think it goes as far as the types of people you're dealing with and also the type of coverage and, and even the makeup of the media cores in many cases. It's always interesting for me to see how a team located in a major city, a college team located in a major city is covered versus one that uh, is the show in some you know college town or, or some remote area because uh, you know, in a major city, I, I think there's a, a level of scrutiny in some cases that a college a, a program will, will get that they won't get necessarily if they are the only thing in town. There's so much in that part of the country that's based around that school and, and the success. Not to say there aren't really good beat writers and there's not great coverage for some of those schools that aren't in major cities, but but there's a difference. There, there's a difference in, in how coaches are, are covered. There's a difference in how players are covered. I think the issues are different. I think the, the money thing is now becoming more of an issue in, in college sports because I think there's a change in the public sentiment. Most people want to see these guys get paid. I, I saw that when I recently did a piece about transfers and, and why are they able to move from school to school without having to sit out a year, I think it's because most people want these guys to get more, and maybe even the NCAA is saying, we will give you more. We won't give you salary. We're going to give you more. And uh, But but in the in the pro ranks, when I look at pro coverage, and you, you deal with this uh, with, with all the teams here in town, it's it's salary cap, and it's, it's, you know, it's trades, and it's a transactional nature that isn't so much in, in college sports other than with recruiting and now with maybe some coaching moves in the transfers. You don't have that transactional journalism that you have, certainly in the NFL, the NBA, even Major League Baseball to a degree. As we're recording this, it's the night, it's the day after Zion Williamson gets hurt, blows the shoe out. That, that becomes a big story along with the connection to Nike. And it's hard to not look at, well, I don't know if Zion grew up playing in Nikes. I don't know if he ever wanted to be in them. I know that Coach K has a contract or Duke has a contract sure. with, with Nike. And I, I'm wondering, since you brought up the idea of people maybe challenging the status quo when it comes to amateurism, what effect, if any, do you think it will have on this? Because it's such a feeder system to the NFL and such a feeder system to the NBA. I think it's the speed in which the conversation immediately goes, should Zion Williamson ever play again at Duke? He has a, you know, what they're telling us is a relatively minor knee sprain. It's not something that appears to be season-ending. And immediately after it happens, you're having NBA players react on social media. And I was watching some of the shows this morning as I was doing some radio, whether it's First Take or SportsCenter. It's already, should he come back, even if he's healthy? I mean, and this is a little bit different than the college football conversation because we haven't had a college football player choose to not participate in the postseason when they can compete for a championship. You could argue maybe Nick Bosa at Ohio State, but Ohio State ultimately was not going to be a playoff team. In Zion's case, we know Duke is going to be in the NCAA tournament. We know they're going to be a high seed. We know they're going to have a great opportunity to win a national championship with Zion Williamson in his only, only year as a Duke Blue Devil, and we're already questioning whether he wants to come back or should come back or is it the right thing 
from a business standpoint. So I think the speed in which that discussion happens has changed a lot, and it's reflective of an environment where if he didn't come back, I don't know how much heat he would take publicly. I, you know, Duke fans would be upset. I'm sure the coaches would be upset. But I don't even think his teammates would necessarily be upset because they understand this guy is going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. Several of them are going to be right there behind him, and they're all going to be making a lot of money at this time next year. Why risk further injury, even though this does appear to be a relatively uh, small injury, something that won't you know, cripple his career going forward, and he'll obviously be able to be successful. I hate the one-and-done rule. I, I hate it. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what football and basketball should do. Like I understand the physical limitations that, that, that a child has coming out of high school, that it's rare that you're going to find someone that could actually hold up to the rigors of playing in the NFL. With the NBA, though, I, I'm less sympathetic. And I feel like guys can play immediately. And there's a history of this. some of the best players you've ever played have, have come straight out of high school. If we're having this conversation five years from now, is that rule gone? Or do you think we still are living in the place where it's one and done? I, I think it's gone. I, th- I, think, I think all the momentum right now is to give players as much freedom to make choices about their careers as possible, even if they're bad choices. That's sort of the discussion that we're having with transfers right now. Uh, you know, these coaches are upset because they think they know what's best for these players, and they shouldn't ha- be able to transfer freely, and they should have to sit out a year and make sure their, their academics are in order. But those players might still want to make that move, and maybe we should let them make that move. And for every LeBron James, there's obviously a, a number of guys who came out of high school who we don't talk about anymore, who didn't have long and successful and lucrative uh, relatively lucrative NBA careers. But, but there, there are also plenty of those guys that went to college sure, that didn't absolutely. have a long, yeah, long Right, right. And, I, again, I, I think the conversation is more, and I'd be curious what you think, Should these co- if the college players were getting a real salary or some real money, would you feel differently about the one-and-done rule? If, if Zion was getting $150,000 this year, to be at Duke, to be with Coach K, to develop his game. And, and I still think that college basketball is the best minor league system for the NBA. It's, you know, it still is because of the coaching. If he was getting some real money for the value he brings to Duke and he did have to play only that one season, would it be worth it? Probably. And this is where you and I can have discussions as quasi-academics, too. Having traveled with DePaul, to do games and then seeing it on the side of of being a professor and having athletes as my students what we're asking them to do to me doesn't quite live up to the education that we're giving them Mm -hmm. and I know that that sounds ridiculous for quasi-academic to say but what what they are being asked on a on a daily basis like what their schedule is like to me is impossible. And I keep thinking about whether or not I could have handled this as a 17, 18, 19 year old. And I, I don't know that I could. And I, I, I've gained a level of respect for the way that these students approach this because you are talking about a scholarship. And I believe that there is value, not just in the education that one gets in college, but the social aspects of college. I think it's really valuable. Oh yeah. But I'm I have completely flipped on the idea of amateurism kind of being above all. 
I, I do think that there's got to be a way to monetize it, even if we're only talking about the top 2% of college athletes who can make money off of their own likeness. I remember being a student at DePaul and seeing Jermaine Watts' jersey in the bookstore and knowing that he was never going to get any piece of it. And you take the names off of it and just have the numbers, but everyone knows right. that, that that number is Zion Williamson's number or, or whomever. So to me, it's it's a facade. I the, the problem becomes, and this is where I think the the what's the word that I'm looking for? Like all of the bureaucracy has left us in this place. It's going to be difficult to put in a system that is equitable to students. And because it's going to be difficult, I feel like a lot of people that are in charge of college sports are like, well, it's too difficult. I mean, we'd love to do right, it, but right. show me a model that works. And I don't think that they've been 100% honest in giving us a model that may enrich these students. Yeah, I mean, again, you can be really ruthless about it and say, listen, Zion Williamson makes a lot of money for Duke. He should get a lot of money. Uh, the guy at the end of the bench or the woman's soccer player or the, the, the men's soccer player, you're, 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 we're, it's costing us money as an institution to fund your program. We're, we're not going to pay you. And obviously you're going to get into some Title IX issues, and I don't know how you necessarily deal with it, but there are people that have looked at this. And I, I do think that there is more of an openness to at least examine the possibility, largely because the public has, has flipped. I, I don't think 10 years ago, I think there was the more uh, that mindset of, you're getting a free education, shut up and play. Right. I don't think that's necessarily there as much anymore. It's still there in some circles. Uh, I would say older people, probably more than younger people, but I think there has been a shift to these guys need to be getting something more. I mean, the thing that frustrates me more than anything from an academic standpoint is it, it, you know, one thing that they, 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 the NCAA talks about all the time and even these coaches talk about is most of these guys are not going to be professionals. So I would love there to be a way to normalize their college experience more. One thing that frustrates the hell out of me is when I hear about, well, all our guys stayed on campus this summer to lift weights. I wouldn't be in my job. I'm guessing you wouldn't be in your job if I didn't have the opportunity to leave my college campus in the summer Correct. and work for ESPN and work. I had an internship in New York as well for the Sports Illustrated group. If I didn't have those experiences, I don't know if I would have gotten a job out of college. And it's not that there aren't other opportunities for these athletes, but they are limited by these demands on them to be elite-level athletes and to be completely devoted to the sport. And obviously we want you to get a degree, but how prepared are you to not be a pro athlete? And they're, they're tacit demands, too. Like the, it, It's not like, oh, well, you, you, you have to be here, but it's frowned upon. When, when you're not here and then you're labeled as someone who isn't giving 100% to achieving their goal as a basketball player or a football player or whatever. But you're right. And that's what I'm talking about with the socialization aspect of college where job, going to a job, learning how to navigate inside a workspace, dealing with people that don't look like you, aren't from where you're from. All that stuff is really valuable, and if you don't have the skills to do that, where are you going to learn? You're, you're going to now learn them as you're being pushed out of whatever university that you're at, and now you're supposed to already know how to act like an adult when you haven't had adult training outside of 
what you've done athletically. And I guess the athletic people would counter that by saying, who do these employers want to hire? What type of characteristics do they want in their employees? They want confidence. They want leadership. They want responsibility. They want discipline. And these are great characteristics that we learn uh, as part of a as part of a college athletic program, and, and it's true. There are a lot of athletes that are incredibly successful. I mean, President Obama sat next to Reggie Love at the game last night. Reggie Love, former Duke basketball player, was his body man. Was his guy, and, and so there are tons of examples of that. And there are many, many examples. And I and I, I do agree with the NCAA on this. We don't cover a lot of the really good stories because they're in sports that don't get as much attention. But there are a lot of really good stories in college athletics based on opportunity and based on the experiences that they've had. But in the most visible sports, I think the experiences are the most abnormal from a social standpoint and certainly from a preparing for life after whatever sport it is standpoint. I read something the other day that kind of made me smile, and I, I, I had always enjoyed college softball. Apparently, college softball is now getting to, like, the bottom rung of, of revenue generating, that we're starting to see like, people gravitate towards watching it on ESPN, hmm. and we're seeing some of the, the, the schools that have traditionally been good at, at college softball. Like, they there actually is a following, so that – that makes me happy that there could be uh, another women's sport that could end up generating money. And I know that, that there's a struggle even in basketball, considering that there's there's definitely a, a group of haves and have-nots yes. when it comes to, to college women's college basketball. But I, it was super cool to see that, that softball itself is starting to at least crack kind of a, a glass ceiling on revenue. Yeah, no, that is interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I just in talking to some folks on the TV programming side, it would make sense. It, it's a sport that has a major event at the end of the year, uh, the, the Softball World Series, the Women's College World Series. It's a sport that doesn't take a whole lot of time. Nope. So if you're a viewer, you're not spending three and a half hours watching a single game. And I, I haven't talked to the folks at Big Ten Network or some of these other uh, networks that air a lot of softball, but I, I think it, it's something that would work for programming. I know that volleyball is one that has grown as far as a, a somewhat marketable sport along with the basketballs and the footballs. It's still about football largely and then men's and women's basketball, but these other sports. You know, it's interesting. You asked me kind of college sports, one thing that's different. Uh, the regionality of it is fascinating. So when I go down to the SC, I cover an SEC game or even if I'm going down there in the offseason, you know, college baseball is a big deal down there. It is. And it's not up here. I know obviously you're a baseball guy, but it, it's kind of sad that it's not. But then hockey is a huge deal for many of the programs where we are in Chicago or near uh, you know, Michigan and, and Minnesota. Notre and, Dame. And Notre Dame and, and even Ohio State, Illinois has a program now. That's not obviously completely off the radar for most of the schools in the south. So you know, there, there are these, you know, wrestling is a big deal in the Big Ten. People go to Penn State Iowa wrestling meets, but uh, but they're not going to probably go to the Penn State Iowa baseball game in, in the same numbers. Whereas in the South, man, I mean, going to Mississippi State and seeing their tradition in baseball, LSU, uh, Ole Miss has a great tradition. South Carolina, Arkansas was in the national championship game, so it's it's a different deal out there. The power dynamic that we cover in professional sports. I mean, it's pretty normal. I mean, the teams and the leagues have power. There's a, a, a there's a bunch of power that coaches have, but we get an opportunity to talk with players. I am fascinated by 
the power dynamic in college sports and what that is like for you to cover. How how does one go about trying to cover college sports well where your access is so limited? Right. Well, I think one is to have realistic, I, I was going to say low expectations, but realistic expectations because every place is different, every coach is different, but generally it's restrictive. That's that's the lean of this sport as far as I think where, where I get it, I'm even more so than players as assistant coaches. A lot of coaches, at least in football, have taken the Bill Belichick model where we're not going to let you talk to our assistants. So how do you establish relationships with those guys? In many cases, they become head coaches. You've seen Alabama, uh, you know, a number of their coordinators are now head coaches at, at the college level. They never talk to the media. So how do you get in with those guys as a reporter? Um, it, it was funny watching some of the postgame coverage from the Duke-North Carolina game and it was it was fun for me as a primarily college football reporter to see reporters in both locker rooms talking to the athletes, and that's an ACC rule that ACC basketball opens their locker room. ACC football don't open their locker room. Aside from the national from the league championship game, it's it's at each coach's discretion. And aside from USC, I don't know if there's a major program that opens its locker room after games. And I was even talking to another assistant coach in the Pac-12 last year when USC had their struggles. And one comment he made to me, I'll never forget, he said, you know, I'm a Southern California guy, and obviously it's tough what's going on at USC, but, man, they give out a lot of information. Their, their coaches are talking every day, and, and we picked up something from one of their press conferences. We would never would have done that. We never would have put that out there. So they're kind of the, one of the most open programs, the most pro-like in terms of their access, and it's almost worked against them, at least in the eyes of a competitor in the league. In coaches that you talk to that are on that assistant tier, does it bother them that they can't talk to the media? Because I would imagine you're trying to audition yourself for that time when you get a promotion or become a head coach. I think you get two categories. You get the guys that are all about ball. They just want to deal with their guys, be in dark rooms, and never interact with anyone, um, which I get it, and that's part of football. Uh, and then you have guys that would like to, to be out a little bit more visibly. And I, and I respect the coaches that allow their coordinators to talk. Herm Edwards at Arizona State, obviously coming from the pro ranks, had not been involved really in coaching for many years, has has become very open with his coaches. He allows everybody to talk. And, and, and for the most part, I think that's the case. But uh, I think the Sabanization, the Belichickization of football – has caused a lot of these coaches to shut it down. It's it's just funny when I see Kirby Smart, who I like. I like Kirby a lot. Kirby's a very talented, sharp, smart, uh, good-to-be-around coach. Uh, He never talked at Alabama, and he goes to Georgia, and none of his guys can talk. You know, Will Muschamp, coach for Nick Saban, none of the South Carolina assistants talk to the media. So I I think some of them maybe liked it, but then uh, some of them certainly would like to have that opportunity. It was actually interesting. From One of my first experiences covering college football was Notre Dame and Charlie Weiss. And people tend to think, God, that must have been awful. I mean, he's such a jerk, and he was a jerk to the media. Charlie A. was one of the most interesting coaches to cover because he'd always have something to say. And B., he was one of the most open as far as access. The the Notre Dame writers and people that used to cover Notre Dame and I still reminisce about the access we had to all of his assistants. Hmm. And I think he he made those guys available because he knows if we have success here, they're going to go on and have their opportunities to be head coaches. Uh, And, you know, even now under Brian Kelly – 
they're not as open. They, they just aren't. Uh, they, they don't have regular availability with their assistant coaches. So that's a, a big factor when I'm sort of assessing a program and its accessibility. Are you allowing your assistants to talk? Are you allowing your freshmen to talk? Those are the two areas where typically coaches are the most restrictive. I want to go back to something you said about college sports versus pro sports and being in big cities. And we both work in Chicago or work out of Chicago and you've worked in the Chicago market. I I always wonder about this, and every year there's usually, like, one story on the collegiate level. Like, it's Lewis's volleyball team, or it's Loyola, or it's Northwestern a couple years ago, where they're able to capture the imagination of the public. Ordinarily, this happens in a vacuum of the Bears either being bad or or the other pro teams being bad. Why is it that college sports seemingly can't get a foothold in Chicago? It's a great question. I mean, part of it is that the teams locally, even if they have some tradition, like uh, you you look at DePaul's long-term tradition in basketball, or Loyola has won a national championship, um, they, they don't. They are not. They're not seen as powerhouses. I think the, the team that I still remember that truly captured this area was Illinois in 05. That was that. Those guys were rock stars. Like I mean that 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 team. Every game was an event. And I, and I forget what was going on with the other teams at the time. Obviously, it was out of football season. It was out of baseball season. I don't think the Bulls and the Hawks were doing anything. So it, timing certainly plays a part of it. But I think it's a lack of tradition, and I think Chicago is a great college sports fan town, but it's incredibly fragmented. If you go to the bars in Wrigleyville or Lakeview or wherever, you'll see the flags of almost every, every school. Uh, you won't see the flags of one school. No, that's and, true. And like, you might have a DePaul, Alabama bar. Yeah. Like, it's we- you're right. Like, it's really weird where, well, here's your Michigan State bar. Here's your Michigan bar. Here's your Penn State bar. Here's your Loyola basketball bar that also happens to be an Indiana football bar for right. some strange reason. Sure, and I think it's why you know, like Northwesterns try to appeal to Big Ten fans instead of knowing that they they can't fill their stadium with just Northwestern fans. I went there. There's not enough alums in the area, even though they've been you know, arguably the most consistent college sports program in the area in football. They have not uh, you know captured that attendance. Because it's a struggle. They just don't have that local base. I've always wondered if DePaul became a top 25 program annual. You can probably speak to this better than I. I do believe that some people would get behind it. You need to get the casual fan. You need to get the college sports fan that has a reason to go. Loyola obviously had that for a little while uh, last year. And, and I was actually up there last night for their game and try, uh, putting together a story on them for next week. I know that you know, Coach Moser believes that they can create that on a smaller scale. It's just tough in this market. And, and like you said, whenever the Bears are good or whenever there's a baseball pennant race or if uh, you know, the Hawks are, are making a run at the playoff, there's going to be more interest in that. I mean, the, the Bears, again, drive this market. They swallow everything. And they really do. And, and even talking to people who work for schools, you know, they'll schedule their media availability around the Bears, hoping to get a couple of the TV cameras, hoping to get some of the reporters out to uh, cover their, their team, even if their team is doing really well, because they, they understand that it's always going to be Bears first or Cubs first, or, uh, you know, and then everyone else is kind of after that. How has teaching changed you? Yeah, I, I really like it. I, I think it's, um, it's a great outlet. I think I needed it uh, at the time. You know, I started teaching – at DePaul, I guess it was back in 2014, so I was sort of out of the 
you know, really grinder blog phase that I was in from about 2008 to 2012, where I literally couldn't do anything else. I mean, it would have been very hard for me to even teach a class at that time. So it was a, it was an outlet. It was a chance to work with students. It was a chance, you know, again, I, I, I go into it with a very practical approach and, and probably you do too working in the field. I want to get you jobs. We know how hard it is to get jobs in this field. And while I want to teach you things and talk about uh, people who do it at a really high level and the history, in some cases, of, of sports journalism, I want to teach you the skills that you can go out there and have success in the field because uh, it's, it's a real challenge and it's always changing. So I, I, love, the, I love working with students because it's always a different group, uh, different abilities. Uh, had some great students, had some students that, that weren't that great, but um, it's been a, a lot of fun. So I'd love to know what your experience has been. I could tell you a little bit of mine. I actually, and I've, I've talked about this, and I don't, I don't mean to put this in the generalities of generations, but I noticed the shift in the last three classes that I've taught, so the last two years. And, I, and there's probably a, the generational shift between the end of the millennials versus the beginning of, the, of Gen Z is right around there when you're talking about the students that we have. I, I don't have bad things to say about millennials. I enjoy teaching them, but I have noticed a difference. And here's the difference I've noticed. Mm. With the first five classes, six classes that I taught at DePaul, the students were interested in in what I was doing, but it was like, just just get me a job. Like I'm only taking this class so that you personally <laughs> can get me a job. Interesting. And in the last two years, I've noticed, hey, old guy, you know stuff. Can you teach me the stuff that you know? And then I'm gonna add it to what I already know. And then I'm going to get a job on my own. It, it was almost like there was a realization of value of what we were teaching versus this is just a speed bump. And it, it's it's been really profound for me. Like over the last two classes, like the students have come in with a level of understanding that I wasn't used to. And I've, I've enjoyed it because they push now. I, I like it. I don't have to drag them along like I did in maybe classes previous. I don't know if you had had that same experience. I just I have a lot of affection for this Gen Z group hmm. because of that. And it might be because it's a natural connection between a Gen Xer and a Gen Z, that these are kids that, that are – biologically young enough to be my children. So right. I their parents are probably influenced in the same way that I was. And so I can see something in them, even a generation removed from them. I, I am fascinated by them. They pick up on stuff really quickly and they don't necessarily have a great respect for history. But once you explain like how things are connected, they go, oh, okay. That makes sense. It is almost like you're filtering it into their their calculator, and they're like, okay, I need to put that in here because I might need that down the road. Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it makes sense because there's enough of a gap between 
the skills that we learned and the skills that maybe they came into school with. So, for example, like they know more about social media in general, many of my students, than I do. But I, they don't know a damn thing about how to write with AP style. And so I, you know, and some students get frustrated with this, but I hammer that. I mean, my, my critiques with them, obviously, I, I evaluate the kind of macro of their writing, but I, I get into the weeds. I mean, you need to style this this way, and this is not a sentence, and, and, and this is not a word. I mean, you know, there, there are some basic, and, and, and again, one thing that I think is, is applicable to all sorts of media, especially sports media, you've got to be able to write. And it's why I've tried to have people come in and talk to my class who are reporters, not just in the text world or the print world, whatever you want to call it, but uh, are TV people who can write or radio people who can write and the reporting skills. And that's one thing that uh, I've really hoped that I've been able to connect with my, my students is, is, is how to report because I think that's completely – um, some of the old school skills have completely evaporated. Vanished. No one picks up the damn phone. I mean, everything is over text or over email. No one emailed me back. You probably get that all the time. Sure. And I just got no responses. And I, I sent out all these emails. Pick up the phone and make calls. It's harder for people to avoid. Go to their office. You know, the, the, and, and so maybe that's when we're sort of the valuable old guys because you know they have some superior skills, and, and I respect that. I, I don't think I know more than them in certain areas, but I can teach you how, how to basically report. I can teach you how to write, hopefully improve your writing. And, and I, I'm hopeful that I will have more of these, and I have had a, a few lately, that, that really genuinely want to learn instead of just, hey, can you help me? What connections do you have? Or yeah, hey, I just that, want to get an A. That's what it was. It, 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 initially, it was, can you connect me to blah, blah, blah. Do you know David Kaplan? Yes, I do know David Kaplan. But them understanding that it means something for me to recommend you. If, if I don't believe that you have what it takes. I'm not going to recommend you no. to someone because my own reputation is valuable. That that we work in a business where we actually trade off of our reputation so that you don't want it sullied by someone who was ill prepared to take on that job. No, I mean it, it's it's I thought I had it yesterday with the student who wants to get into working in social media with with teams and 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 you know I, I'm I'm willing to help because I think she's shown the ability or at least a desire to learn and get better and want to work in that space and and but but it's not going to be the case for everybody and if you haven't shown uh, kind of a commitment I always tell my students like this is an effort business I can tell if I can tell by reading your work if you tried I think it's the beauty of of of, of what we do when, when when you're teaching students to put together a radio piece. You, you can't half-ass it. I mean, you have to show the effort. If you talk to one person for a story as opposed to six or seven or eight people, <laughs> I am going to be able to tell that. So, uh, you know, whether you're listening to me or not, it, when, when we have our meetings and our lectures, and I don't even call them lectures, um, if you don't put in the effort, it's going to show. And, and that's, that's what I love about what we do uh, because it, it's very – obvious and you're, 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 you, you can't, you can't uh, get around that part of it to succeed in our classes and ultimately if you're going to go out there in the world in, in sports media. It does recharge me though. Like every quarter that I teach, like I, I walk away recharged mm, because yeah. of their enthusiasm and their spirit and how badly a lot of them want to succeed. 
and and there is a pleasing element to it too like they want to please you but i i am i i always love when the light clicks on and and not just the light clicks on like i see what they're doing but they themselves then go oh i get it now and now now i know that i can apply what you taught me to put together this piece or do this talk show there it's a great feeling like it's selfishly like it's a wonderful thing for an educator to 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 have that because it, it does spur you on to want to do more for your students right i think i think the, the best students are the ones that you can see improvement in through the quarter i think we've all had we both had some high-level students that come in just with the ability, and you're almost just supplementing them throughout the way. But the, the ones that come in, and, and man, their first story or their first piece of writing, it's brutal. And then by the end, you're seeing some improvement. That, I, I get great satisfaction out of that. Or you know, taking someone who's good and making them really good, uh, you know, ability to, to a point where they can go out and string for a, a local newspaper or a website or start a blog and, and have some success. Th- those, are, those are my favorite stories are when you know, they, they do work that gets noticed because it, they've improved and they've put energy and effort into it. And uh, you know, that's, that, that's what I get the most satisfaction out of. When did you know you could write? Um, you know, I, it always came easy to me, e- not easier uh, than, than other things, terrible at math, ter- you know, was never a, really a science guy. But I would say, you know, in, in high school, I, I, I could write. I didn't do a ton of, you know, kind of journalism stuff. But then when I got to college and, and got into that world, um, you know, it just it just came easier to me than other things. Uh, I, I was never a huge reader. I, w- I still wish I, 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 I read more. I do read a lot of shorter things, but, um, but I, it's, just, it's always been able to, to, to happen. And uh, it's funny now because I probably write less than I ever have in my career just because of what we do at ESPN, um, because we're so app-driven. We're not publishing 10 or 12 stories a day or 20 stories a day, um, uh, our group, we're not writing that much. So sometimes it's more of a struggle now than ever. But I, I, I do, whenever I write something that I feel relatively happy with, you kind of remember, okay, this is why you do it. This is, this is, this is something that, that I, I feel good about and can be proud of. You have a lot of strong beliefs. I know this because I've known you for a long time. I'm curious what your personal policy is when it comes to social media and your beliefs. Yeah, so this is tricky. I mean, we've gone through so many iterations of this at ESPN um, about what you should or should not put out there on social media. Um, I came up through a group where it was very much don't go there. Um, It's not worth it. Uh, you know, I, I had a boss that would joke that uh, Twitter is good for only two things, posting links and getting fired. Uh, I, I tend to agree. Yeah. I think Wright Thompson was correct in his thoughts on Twitter. And I, I know that I've scaled back quite a bit like that. It's it's become less. And you know why? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But, no, no, no. but part of the reason why is I think the app is ill equipped to give nuance and even with 240 characters i i don't feel like i have enough to sometimes broach subjects that considering i have a couple of different platforms where i could i have a radio show where if if i have the time i can i can discuss something more in depth same thing with this podcast that there 
there are issues inside journalism itself that I'm more comfortable talking about here than I would be on Twitter itself. I, I tend to agree with that, but I there's the balancing act of do you owe it to the people that follow you for them to know you better? And I'm not sure where I fall on that spectrum. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the most successful, I don't know if successful, but, but the most um, engaged posts that I put out there on Twitter at least, and that's where I, I, I'm not big on Instagram. My wife does that more, but are, are the ones that have something personal. To him, you know, either a you know a restaurant I went to or a place I went to. I, I tweeted a, a, the only picture I've ever tweeted of one of my kids was when my daughter was born during football season. Hey, I won't be working this weekend because of this, and and people love that. So I think it's okay to show things about yourself that you're comfortable with. I think the hard thing is when you mentioned the word belief, and we all have strong beliefs, and there are times where we're tempted to put those things out there, and we're, we're, we're emotional, or we're determined, or we want to see some changes in the world, or, or in sport, and that's where I have to be a little careful, because I just have seen so many examples where it hasn't worked out for that person, or that person's been misunderstood, or they've gotten into it uh, with, with, you know, followers, or whoever, and it just hasn't ended well, but it's been interesting to see um, you know, the different people that have come through ESPN that have obviously been very vocal about it and, and gotten into some controversies or uh, in some cases even improved their careers. And then just the company's attitude towards uh, th th those types of things, especially from a political standpoint. I mean, we, we have, a, uh, I have a colleague who came in from outside ESPN who's very opinionated on Twitter and continues to be and doesn't get uh, maybe uh, – he. he Either they don't care, or um, or, uh, or it hasn't risen to it, the level of yeah, importance yet. Right, but I mean, listen. I mean, they 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 are. I think we're in a place as a company now where we're not going there as much as a whole, and uh, and I wonder how it's going to affect certain people. It won't be a hard adjustment for me because I'm not. Um, out there putting my political views on, on social media on a regular basis. The thing that I struggle with, and I'm curious if you ever talked about this with your students, is are people that I have a lot of respect for with their writing or their broadcasting or their radio work, and then they're almost like a different person on Twitter or they have different standards on Twitter. And that's why I, I tell them you got to have your own standards on Twitter because someone's seeing it, someone that could be hiring you, someone that could be deciding whether they want to give you an interview. You can't change the standards um, uh, dramatically in some cases from what you're doing on your on your regular basis. And I also am realistic. P p most people that follow me on Twitter want to know college football information. They don't really care about what I think about um, you know what's going on in the mayoral election or Jesse Smollett or whatever. I mean, they they want to know what's going on with their team or what I think about these moves that are going on in the sport or, or what, what latest piece of content. I'm very realistic about that. I don't know if there's a delusion that people are following me for, for my beliefs on things that generally aren't related to sports and college football. It's one of the first assignments that I give my classes. I have them basically dox their social media. Like I want you to go through it. And I want you to find me something that might be objectionable. That's good. Yeah. And, I, and I use it with, in conjunction with how many, um, usually uh, you get the statistics on how many employers are looking at social media. And the, the number that I've gotten is about 72%. Like they're actually looking, I'm sure next year that number will, will go up. Sure. 
And I say, find me, like, and I want you to write a post about why this might be objectionable to an employer. And you find stuff. And what I say to them is that I am not here to put a governor on your fun. Go have fun. And if you want, take pictures and videos of the fun that you're having. The problem is when those pictures end up on the Internet, it's they're there forever. I mean, it's 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 a difficult thing to try and get rid of. So just be mindful that if you are pursuing work in our business, that you're already starting to work on your brand. So make sure that your brand is, is the, if that if you want to be that, be it, own it, love it. And I'm here to support you in it. But if you understand that it might jeopardize of your future, just be mindful of of that when you end up posting things. And you use use the word brand, and I know some people hate that word, but I know. it's a very realistic word in our media climate, and it's one that I think about a lot. And at times I've struggled to navigate. How much of yourself do you want to put out there? Do you want to be an opinionist, or do you want to be a reporter? Can you be both? Uh, you know, how 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 much of your following is based on things you do outside of your main job? Uh, how much of it is because you're on TV or on the radio or how much of it's just to the information that you have? I, I struggle with that a lot of times. Uh, you, you kind of can estimate it, but you never know for sure. And you never know how much of yourself to kind of share. But I, I do think it's important to have fun. I think it's important to show a bit of your personality. I, I just you caution because there's been so many examples of somebody who did something relatively innocent uh, even if it didn't look that way, where it ended up being, at least from an, a career standpoint, catastrophic. What worries you about media? And I'm going to leave it open-ended in a big question yeah. where you can kind of figure out what to do with it. Uh, you know, I, I guess I, because we come from background, you and I, I mean, you covered the Bears, I've covered football, and I, I still think it's it should be about the people we cover. And it, it's I struggle at times with media personalities, I do, um, and 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 the idea of them and why they, they matter so much, uh, because I, I still think the the material is the extraordinary thing, the 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 athletes and the coaches and the drama and the the games and the issues that we cover that should be the focus. So it, it's it, I, I, I sometimes I think that that there's a, a lot of really good people at our company and other outlets whose work is not recognized because they're not a big enough personality. And I struggle with that with my own, you know, how much of my personality do I put out there? Can I be a personality? Should I be a personality? Should I just stick to the information? So that, I think that's the thing that I, because I, we're in an environment now, I mean, I, you know, we, we had a, a talent summit at ESPN a couple of years ago, and I looked over towards two individuals, I won't name them, and thought, wow, that's $15 million standing at that uh, high boy over there. I mean, that's, that's – uh, it's crazy. And, and they're both talented. I'm not saying they're not worth it, but I never thought we'd be in an environment where individual media members who aren't athletes are, are seen and valued in that way. And I think it's hard to navigate when you're – you don't look at yourself in that same light. I look at myself as somebody who uh, wants to be as strong of a reporter and analyst I can on my sport in my in my kind of lane. That's 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 uh, that's a hard thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just something that I struggle with to kind of 
uh, internalize and, and in some ways navigate. What advice would you give someone that wants to be you as far as what you've already accomplished in your career and what you'll continue to accomplish? Well, I, I think it's some you, you want to have. Um, I, I wish I became a better reporter early in my career. I, I, I think I could always write, um, but I, I only recently, and I don't, I'm not saying I'm the greatest reporter, I feel like only recently have I learned, uh, you know, some of the tricks of, of getting information and people to connect with. I wish I'd learned that 10 years ago. I think I'd be um, better at my current job or, or who knows what, what, the, what the thing would. But I, but I think that that, uh, that that's one of the areas. Um, I, I, I wish I, I had more skills. Um, as far as technology and and what do you mean? Well, you know, just in terms in terms of social media, in terms of how to uh, in, in, we always talk about brand how how to how to build your brand. I think that's one thing that I think I, I I've kind of learned on the fly. I mean, there's been a lot of like learning on the fly, so it's why it's fun to teach these students to at least get their these ideas in their head of of here's how you have to think about your career. But you know, as far as you know, if you want to do this. I think uh, you have to have a baseline in reporting. You have to really approach, uh, at least in my in my case, college football. How can you become as much of an expert on everything uh, as possible, and also look at things nationally? I, I think there's a lot of great uh, team beat writers out there who are just so on top of everything in in their school or even their team their team within the school. I think it's hard to be a national reporter. It really is because you have to uh, assess constantly, is this worth my time? Is this an issue that's going to resonate nationally? Is this a team that matters nationally? Is this a small story that, if I tell it the right way, is going to pop nationally? So thinking in that mindset, I think, is, is one thing that I, I've tried to do well in my career is um, uh, instead of uh, going so into a story or a team that just isn't going to have that reach, always be asking okay is this for a national audience is this going to resonate with them is there something that you haven't covered that you'd like to cover it's fine i haven't covered a national championship game uh I, wait you know, what so one, one of the oddities of my career is you know for many for many years at espn I, I only covered the big 10 conference and then became a national reporter and uh, when, when I was covering the Big Ten, they never made the national championship game. And then when I became a national reporter, a lot of my focus shifted to uh, covering the coaching industry. And it's not a regret, and I'll tell you why. Because instead of the national championship game, kind of speaking to the point I made earlier about reporting, I go to the uh, coaches' convention. It, it, it always occurs during the same kind of few days of that national title game. And it is one of the best events I go to all year because – it is thousands and thousands of coaches with no PR people, no barricades to them access-wise. It's networking, it's building relationships, it's reconnecting, it's meeting new people, and it helps me in my job the rest of the year. But the irony is, because I've been at, I think, the last four or five coaches' conventions, and I never did the national title game before that, I have not covered a national a football championship game. That's crazy. At some point, I'd like to do it. Maybe next year, New Orleans would be a good spot, or uh, I think Indianapolis is coming up. But yeah, it's it's one of the odd things in my career that um, I actually even haven't even done a, a basketball. Uh, the only Final Fours I covered were when I was at the Daily Herald and did the Illinois one and did a couple of the others uh, when uh, when we were just going to the Final Four back in the uh, days when newspapers spent money. Any interest at all in jumping back into covering pro sports? You know, I, I thought about it. I, you know, I, I think if there was one, 
the NBA looks awfully appealing to cover. That's the sport that I know a lot of reporters want to be involved in. Like even my friends who are covering college football, you know, they 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 are interested in the NBA. Um, yeah, the NFL. I don't know if my skills or interests necessarily translate as well. I have so I have some contact with the NFL. I know coaches who are in the league. I'm going to go to the combine next week. I do some stuff around the draft. So that would sort of be the natural one. But um, I, I really do like. There's just certain things about college and the issues that we cover and the evolution of it that that, that I like and that keep me interested. So you never know what's going to happen, but. Uh, right now, I I'm happy doing college football. I love that you have you understood and evolved to realizing you have to, everyone is everything now. That the days of I'm a writer and I'm just gonna write that's over. Right. The the days of I'm a radio talk show host and that's all I can do that's over. You, you have to be able to do everything. Why is that so important now? Because an employer is going to ask you to do it. And if you just throw up your hands and say, I don't know how, or even worse, I refuse to do it, they're going to find somebody else who can do it. And I, and I tell my students all the time, you don't have to be an expert at everything, but you have to have a competency with everything. So you have to be able to do social media. You have to be able to go on the radio and tell stories in that way. TV is probably the hardest. I know you're doing more of TV, and, and I, I, it's something that, that I still struggle with and don't do a ton of, but I try to get better. I tell my the only way to get better at TV is to do TV. There is no other simulation. You have to get on camera, and you have to screw up, and you have to evaluate yourself, and you have to be uh, uh, speak you know, in, in, in ways that you can get your point across in 15 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute. It's a really different medium than everything else we do, and you also have to be able to write. So I just think it's it's one of the fun things about my career is, you know, I I was brought to ESPN in 2008 as a blogger. I had never blogged, so that was something I had to figure out on the job, but it wasn't like, no, I'm not going to do that. Of course, I'm going to, I'm going to do it and, 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 and try and fail and succeed and, and get into a pattern. And, and then we're going to put you on TV. I'd never done it. So you get better and, and you get more comfortable. And when, I, again, I want my students to go out there and at least be okay with anything thrown their way. Um, you may not be uh, the, the best at it, but you're, you're, the more you do a, a wide variety of things, you're going to be um, at least uh, able and competent to do it. I mean, you mentioned Wright Thompson. I tell my, my students, there, there's only one Wright Thompson, and there's only a few people that have a job like that. If you think that you're definitely going to go into the field and all you're going to do is write 10,000-word stories <laughs> and, 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 and maybe make movies and stuff— Good luck to you, but you have to at least be okay with writing a 500-word story and writing a news story and then going on the radio and talking about it. I mean, a lot of my assignments that I give out, yeah, they're heavily text. Most of them are, are text pieces, but I, wanna, I want you to supplement with photos, with video, with audio. Give me the different ways to tell a story because you're going to probably be asked to do that in the real world. You are a super busy man. And I truly appreciate you making time for this podcast. And I think that uh, the information that you pass along is really valuable. So I wanted to thank you for, for doing this. And I, I love that we were able to talk about teaching and do it here at DePaul. Yeah, it's really cool. I got my class tonight, and I was a big fan of this podcast. And so I was really honored that you reached out and excited that I could do it and hope to be back someday. I really thought that was one of the more informative hours that we've done. 
And I could have talked to Adam about all of this stuff for forever. These are the types of conversations that I wanted to bring to light with House of L. Because honestly, this is the type of conversation that let's say I run into Adam at DePaul. Or I run into him in the press box covering a Northwestern game or whatever. That's the type of conversation that we would have. And I like to share that so people know. I I also think that people love to know about working for ESPN. And I'm glad that Adam was willing to share as much as he did about working for ESPN. I'm really happy for him, and I'm really proud of him. I think he does a tremendous job, and he has a great following. So it's always cool when I can get someone with a great following on the podcast. Let me take a look at some of the emails that you've sent our way. House of L podcast at gmail.com is the way that you can email us. This is from Rapier Saunders, who says, Lawrence, longtime listener, first-time emailer. I was fascinated by the UFC Sports History podcast with Dave Rebson. I would love to hear about the sports history of other schools in the area. I'm a little younger than you and a DePaul alum as well. I'd love to learn some more about DePaul sports history or other colleges in the area. Chicago has such a rich history of professional athletes, particularly basketball, but I don't know much about the college sports of the city. And if you made it through this episode, you heard Adam and I talking a little bit about why that is. I, I appreciate the the email. That's not a bad idea. Like, I would love to – I mean, it would take some some digging. I'd have to get the, – the problem is I don't want it to just be me talking about some of this stuff. Like, I need to have someone to bounce these things off of, which is why it was great to have Dave Rebson, who literally wrote the book on, on University of Chicago's history. And I'm around that every day because that's my neighborhood and that's where I live. And I love knowing some of that stuff. It's really cool. I, I, would, I would be down for talking about DePaul's football history. Like people at DePaul, I have one of the shirts. I'll put it up sometime on Twitter or Instagram. It says DePaul, DePaul football undefeated since 1939 because we had a football team, like a legitimate football team. And then we decided that we didn't want to do that. Bring it back. Bring it back. Where would we even play? I guess we could play at Soldier Field. All right, there it is. DePaul started up. Let's get a football team going. But, yeah, I don't think that that's a terrible idea. The University of Illinois has some rich history to it. We could do all sorts of stuff. That's not a bad idea. I'll, I'll, I'll see how feasible that is for me to be able to, to finish that. But thank you. I appreciate the the kind words and that you enjoy the episode. This is from John. Lawrence, I've been falling behind on your podcast recently, so I was catching up today. I enjoyed the Tony Andraki episode, but I really enjoyed the Joe Ostrowski and Mark Grody podcast. I've always enjoyed Mark Grody's work, and I'm glad you got him to talk about his alcoholism. I heard about it before, but I, I'm so glad you got him to open up. Plus, I'm glad you got him to do Harrison and Ford, Harrison Ford impersonations. I was probably laughing almost as much as you were. It's funny. I had always liked his Les Grobstein and David Schuster impersonations too, and you hadn't even gotten to those, but I really enjoyed the podcast. Appreciate you. I I think thank you very much, and I'm glad that it's uh you you enjoyed that. 
Grody is is a funny dude, man. He's not just sneak funny, and now we know that part of the reason why he's so funny is because he actually has a background in stand-up comedy, which is outstanding. And I'm I'm loving all of this stuff that we're getting out of him too. But yeah, I can't watch The Fugitive, and, and Panther will tell you, I'm I'm down there doing a Mark Grody impersonation of Harrison Ford, and now anything that Harrison Ford is in. It doesn't matter. I, I'm sitting there doing a Grody impersonation of him. This one from Michael. Lawrence, long-time listener, first-time emailer. I'm a big fan of yours on the score and a bigger fan of the podcast. I wanted to tell you, keep up the great work with the podcast. I have enjoyed all of the guests you have interviewed so far. Just finished the interview with Dion Miller. Please keep the every week format. I look forward to Wednesdays for the new interviews. I know you talked about whether to split up the longer interviews into two episodes or keep them as one. I like the one long interview. Looking forward to next week's podcast, and that's from Michael. Yeah, so next week's podcast, when he wrote this, was Chris Tannehill. So I'm glad that you enjoyed that two hours and 14 minutes of me and Tanny. I did. I really enjoyed it. It's good stuff. Let's see. Let's do one more. This from Eric. Eric says, Lawrence, listen to most episodes. So many great conversations. Just finished the Grody episode and have to give you both, have to give both you and Mark such credit for an entertaining, inspirational, and fun show. You guys really touched a lot of emotions. Thanks. Aw, thanks, Eric. We're glad that we were able to do that for you. And I, I, I love when people get to hear some of the real, like, not that people haven't been real on the podcast. They have. Like, you listen to the Sarah Spain episode and her talking about working nationally and and how she would have loved to have been working locally as a talk show host, but she didn't really get the chance. And now she gets the chance to work nationally and look at what she's done. Or Kelly Kroll talking about some of her fears and insecurities in that episode, uh, along with, talking about goals and the way that she wants to present herself. I, I, I really admire her. And the same thing with Mark Grody. Groats laid it all out on the line and made himself accountable to all of us And as, as he tries to continue to stay sober. And I admire that about him. So I thank you for recognizing that these people are people. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast, so that you got an understanding that there are real people that are on the other side of a mean text or email or tweet. That there are people that, are, that have values and scruples and feelings and problems, quite honestly. All of us do. If you work in this business, you probably have some sort of serious problem. But I, I do thank you for indulging me inside the podcast, and there'll be other great podcasts to come. I can tell you this much. As we sit right now, I am uh, securing the interview for next week, and I'm really excited because it's someone, it's a friend of mine in the business that's not famous at all, it, at least not until a few weeks ago. Then she became famous for a horrible reason, not, nothing that she did, but I am very much looking forward to the conversation I'm going to have with Kathy Cheney 
next week, and I think that you should be looking forward to it too. Hopefully it goes down, and it looks like we're headed in that direction. But just Google her name, and you'll see why she became famous. And it is going to be a big portion of the conversation that she and I have on next week's episode. So that'll do it. Look at me using the new system, a little touchscreen action. I feel like an adult. I'm a big kid now. Thank you for listening to this week's. Go back and just scroll through some of the episodes and see if there are other episodes that you might like because there have been some awesome guests that we have had so far. I'm also back on the radio this week, back on the score Wednesday night if you're downloading this on Tuesday or Wednesday morning. So I'll be back, and then we'll see because my contract is up on March 1st. And we shall see if I am going to return. More on that once a decision is made one way or the other. Either I stay or I go. Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, it would be trouble. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to this ridiculousness. I'll talk to you next week. Peace.